0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And you may be wondering where I've been these past three weeks, but, uh, well, I wish there was some kind of an exciting tale to tell you, but... The truth is that I've just been uh, sort of lounging in the land of lethargy. In other words, I've just been goofing off, kind of uh, pretending that I'm on a summer vacation at the beach and doing a lot of reading and not much else. As I've said before, uh, I want these podcasts to be something that I do for fun and not because I feel like I have to do one each week. And uh, so now I'm refreshed and uh, ready to have some more fun with you here in the salon once again. But while I've been goofing off, uh, some of our fellow saloners have been uh, kind of nudging me back to the world by either buying a copy of my pay-what-you-can novel, The Genesis Generation, or by making direct donations to the salon. And uh, yes uh, I guess that my childhood years in Catholic school have still left a trace of guilt in me and I've begun to feel guilty about not getting around to thanking what has turned out to be a lot of our fellow saloners who were worried that the podcasts were going away. but never fear, I'm uh, planning on keeping these things going for at least through the end of 2013 or so. In fact, uh, as a sign of good faith, I'm not going to thank all of the donors from the past three weeks right now. instead I'm going to, uh, Put out another podcast tomorrow, sort of a double album podcast or something, and uh, I'll thank the rest of you then. So, thanks for the support, goes out to uh, the following people who kind of gave me a boost to get back into podcasting mode. And these fine souls are Graham W., Chris T., Eric S., Sophia N., Stella Luna, Lee M., Dylan H., Dominic B., Mark M., and uh, to longtime listeners, Robert and Roby, or it could be Robin. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not complaining about your handwriting, Robin. It's uh, still orders of magnitude better than mine. So I hope I got that kind of right. And also, one more big thank you goes out to a fellow saloner from Canada who uh, sent a note that really gave me a rush because he signed it uh, with his first name and last initial, which are Joe H. And uh, that was how my dad was known when he was still alive. So. Uh, Hey Joe, thanks a lot for uh, both the donation and uh, for the feel-good moment your letter gave me when I saw Joe H. there. And uh, now, as they say, let's get on with the show. Today I'm going to play two talks that I've wanted to get out to you for a while but just never seem to get around to them. The first talk I'm going to play right now is uh, somewhat uh, of an informal session and uh, more of a question-and-answer session, I guess, that Ann Shulgin led just uh, after one of Sasha's talks at the 2001 Entheobotany conference in Palenque, Mexico. As you'll hear, uh, the Palenque sessions were generally small, informal, and uh, full of interesting information, much of which came from the audience. Unfortunately, uh, very little of the audience comments uh, were clear enough in the recording to include in this podcast, as uh, the recording was done on the little cassette recorder that Matt Palomary had with him at the time. And, uh, hey, thanks again for the recording, Matteo. So, I, uh, I had to cut out some of the audience parts where I couldn't amplify them satisfactorily, And if you happen to be one of the people whose words of wisdom didn't make it into this program and uh, you were at that workshop, well, uh, you're in somewhat good company as I've even edited my own kind of long-winded contribution out of this talk as well. But in the case of my comments, uh, you can trust me, you aren't really missing anything of importance. And so now uh, let's rewind our clocks uh, a little more than 10 years and go back and join Ann Shulgin and a few of us having a conversation about psychedelic safety, uh, among other interesting topics.
1: Is to share experiences, for you to share experiences that might be of help to other people. Um, we'll bring up questions about states of consciousness with a drug Uh, assisted or not, Um, questions that someone else might have answers to, Uh, and no subject as far as I'm concerned is too weird. Um, I personally am interested in lucid dreaming and in uh, the whole UFO phenomenon and just about everything else involving human consciousness. Um, to be fair to everybody, it would be a nice idea if you can, uh, keep your, uh, your story, or whatever you want to call it, uh, to about five minutes, because otherwise, uh, a few people will have all the time, and some people will get no time. Uh, discussion, however, is, you know, unlimited time. Um, the first thing, oh, yeah, um. If if you feel a little uh, hesitant to, to claim that a certain thing happened to you, then you can always use the the favorite Internet expression of, you know, FOAF, a uh, friend of a friend uh, had this happen. It doesn't matter. Um, there is one thing I'd like to, uh, to talk about briefly. Uh, it came up last night. Last year, uh, for the first time, we had uh, one person who experienced this uh, unexpected uh, side effect. Uh, and this year, I think one or two others had the same thing happen last night. Last year, there was a compound that, that was floating around called 2CT7. And everybody had about approximately the same uh dosage level everybody seemed to want to almost everybody seemed to want to try it a uh, very successful except for one person who's not here this year um who had a terribly hard time uh he he almost collapsed uh up at the ruins and uh it took um far longer for him to uh, to get back to baseline than it should have It was extremely intense very uncomfortable and we couldn't figure out what had happened until he happened? Uh, we, we asked him what drugs in general he took, uh, and he was one of those people who had um, gotten into so called smart drugs. Turned out that he was taking daily depranil. And we concluded uh, that the depranil was um, the, the problem. Uh, now, this year, uh, Sasha and I didn't know who was taking anything, if anything, until after they'd taken it. And, uh, uh, at least two people came up to us and, um, made clear that they were not only having an extremely intense experience, but it was too intense. It had been going on far longer. Then this particular drug, which shall remain unnamed because it's not legal. Um, this is a relatively short acting psychedelic and, and a couple of them had been going for, oh, eight, ten hours, which is very unusual. And it was not comfortable. It was obviously an overdose. One of them turned out to have been a user of Deprenil as part of his daily vitamin supplement. And stuff, and I very much suspect the second one uh, was also doing that, so um, I, I would suggest I told Sasha that this uh, information should go out immediately onto Arrowhead and, and uh, those sites, and he said it probably already is, but uh, nobody's been paying enough attention. I think the the rule should probably be for those of us who are not chemists. I don't know whether we're taking a phenethylamine or what, um, that if you are going to experiment with a psychedelic of any kind, make sure you are Deprinil-free for at least five days. Probably seven would be safer. Um, now, has anybody here had this kind of experience? Um, anyone here using Deprinil? Uh, has discovered this particular effect. So, I and the definitely are the same, just yes. different names, and some people know one and, and the other. And then the we'll program is another available in Mexico, and an they inhibitor that people use to oh, potentiate. Well, uh, the, the idea of potentiating it sounds all fine, except that I, I've yet to come across anyone that this happened to who was enjoying it.
2: Well you can mix it with phenylethylene and certain things or else you get into trouble. You use it with tryptamines
1: and you have to be
2: okay. careful
1: how you do it. All right. Well it, it would it be sensible just to say that maybe it's better if you're taking deprenil to drop the depronil for five days. Okay. Yeah. That's a good warning. And I, I'm sure <clears throat> it must be on these various sites, but if you find out that it isn't, uh please take the responsibility of making sure that uh, the sites concerned with psychedelic drugs do have that information, um, because it can be uh, rather unpleasant. Um, I don't know if uh, the audience includes the people who are having trouble. Probably not. I assume that there are, um, are no serious afterfec- uh, after effects of any kind, because last year the gentleman who was having all that trouble was perfectly fine the next day. But it, it's not the happiest experience. Um, okay, I'm going to bring up the first, uh, the first subject, which has come up with several people, and it comes up every year. And I don't have an answer myself, but I think uh, it might be a good idea for, especially the therapists, to perhaps try to get together before the end of the, uh, the seminar, and see what ideas they can come up with and uh, work out. The problem is uh, the oldest one, and that is um, how do you find not only a reliable source of a material that you want to do uh, therapeutic work with as a client, and second, how do you find a therapist who will do this kind of work with you? um i don't have an answer because this entire uh, matter of therapy using psychedelics or MDMA is underground and uh it's a it's a felony as i'm sure you all know uh but it still is going on uh the only suggestion i have about uh you know how to discover these these people is um you have to go very slowly and very carefully assuming that um most people that you ask direct questions of are going to wonder if you are um a uh, an uh, undercover agent and they should be asking themselves that um i think that any therapist who who might be open to doing this kind of work Will probably want to work with you at least six months uh, in ordinary therapy first. Um, the The only way I can think of to get around the the danger to the therapist is that if you if you know a therapist who might be open to uh, working with one of these materials, you could. Ask her, let's say, uh, if I came for a session, and um, I happen to have ingested uh, a certain substance I like to work with just before I came in here, would you be? Would it be all right with you if we made this a longer than usual <laughs> session? Uh, would you be open to the idea? Now, the the tricky thing is that if you mention the particular drug, uh, you're putting the therapist on the spot. Um, if you, if you I- indicate that it is uh, uh, something that may not be entirely legal, but that it is a very good insight drug, for instance, uh, the therapist, I think, and correct me if, uh, if there are lawyers here who uh, don't agree, uh, the therapist, if if the actual drug name is not mentioned, uh, might be able to legally say uh, yes, I I can I can do that, uh, without being put on the spot um, and uh, endangering themselves legally. But that's about as close as I can I can imagine getting to uh, a sort of semi-answer about this. But if um, it was suggested to me earlier that the therapists in this audience really should get together and uh um exchange information and uh having been at this particular conference it doesn't guarantee that you're a safe person but uh there there would be a little less paranoia about it so i i think that's as close as i can come does anyone here have any other suggestions about doing this? Uh, is there anyone with any legal training who uh, would like to add uh, precautions or cautionary things about uh, going about this i I think it's like any underground it's it, it's like uh, trying to get to the underground fighting the Nazis in World War two I mean you don 't just say by the way, is there anyone around here that belongs to the underground uh, otherwise um I don't know if the Internet is much of a help here because there's so much... Anyone can be on the Internet. And, and, uh, anybody you talk to is on the
3: Internet.
1: Right, right, yeah. It's not good, okay. So a,
3: yeah,
1: a there's a lot of research in Switzerland, but that doesn't help someone in Minnesota.
3: <laughs>
1: you know, yeah. Uh, the, the research that's starting up uh, in Israel and in Europe is, is really great. It's uh, very reassuring. But... There are therapists doing this kind of work underground in this country. Um, I'm always asked after any lecture, you know, where can I find one? And my honest answer is I don't have the slightest idea.
2: I have one thing to
1: interject.
2: We know know this one therapist who is doing transpersonal work or getting ready to do it, and his um, chemical of choice is ketamine. And because he's a medical doctor, and he's done certain work with ketamine, he can legally um, give people ketamine, and and he claims that ketamine you'll have a very profound experience, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
3: But,
1: but that's you, one part of yeah, um, you happen to push one of my favorite buttons. Uh, <laughs> uh, ketamine. I know that those who have used ketamine successfully. Um, whether in therapy or, or you know, self-exploration or whatever, uh, swear by it. Uh, my own attitude, frankly, toward ketamine is extremely negative. Um, I think it's a very dangerous drug. Uh, I don't think anything is dangerous once or twice. I may be wrong about that, too. But in general, I think, I think you could take uh, almost anything uh, two or three times. But ketamine, um, I've seen some um, long-lasting results of uh, chronic ketamine usage, which are so horrifying. Uh, I, I could tell you stories about that, but I'll, I'll just say, okay, ketamine for therapy, I would be extremely careful, and I do a lot of asking questions of the therapist. Uh, does the therapist know the horror stories, which are true? Um, how does um, the therapist feel about you know, how many times did he expect to use the ketamine with you? And um, I, I would just be very cautious about it. But I use
2: ketamine both, per, both personally and therapeutically, and used it for a two-year period personally, and I don't know, maybe I have ill effects, maybe I don't, none that I've been able to put my finger on, but I, I, I felt that it provided me significant benefits in my life. Then I had a difficult patient and who had been getting treatment from me and a number of other sources over a period of years, a young woman, a, a serious disturbance, but I really could never put my finger on it. And since I had such a positive experience with ketamine, I consulted with a friend who was also deeply involved with ketamine and used it therapeutically with her, a series of, because it lasts about 30, 40 minutes, a series of... Um, of ketamine experiences It did not have an adverse effect that I know of, I can say, but I'm not sure that we really accomplished anything more than 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 what it had prior to work. Yeah, I I'd just like to interject that that individual psychiatrist is more interested in helping people see God and things like that than he is working out their their personal problems.
1: Okay, so so in other words, it's it's what you might call spiritual work. Uh, not so much personal uh, psychological work. Okay. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's valid. Okay. I
2: wanted to uh, say I've spoken with
1: several neurologists and very uh, knowledgeable doctors
2: about ketamine. And one of the, the long-term effects of ketamine is it inhibits something, I believe it's called glutamine transferase. And glutamine is a recently discovered neurotransmitter that deals with human observation of time. And oh. that's why when you take ketamine, you feel in a timeless space. It's very interesting. And um at least for me in my experience, I think that the horror stories mostly come in with people who use it intramuscularly or in- injected in any way because it's direct route to the brain. I mean that's just like with and all those things.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. oh okay.
2: And I use the Lily technique in the sense that you use small amounts over periods of time, timed intervals and you bring yourself to a higher point than you would if you took, you know, say a large amount, went up and then back down. And you use less, so there's less long-term damage. But I don't think anyone really knows about the damage. Yeah. But it is short-term, from what I understand. So long as you don't use it chronically, there is no long-term damage.
1: Okay, because the people I, I've I've uh, I'm thinking of um, were injecting every 15 minutes. And uh, the worst is that they, uh, neither of them ever could acknowledge the fact that they were hooked on it at all. They always expressed it as a preference. I'd rather be in this state. They were absolutely unable to recognize, which is not, you know, that rare, I suppose, with with addictions, but they couldn't see it. John Lilly and, and, and another, um, because I've seen John Lilly, at least he, he was functioning. Uh, this, there's a lady who, um, one of our, our dear friends, and she wrote one of the most successful books, uh, in the 60s, very famous, and, uh, she's a terrific lady, very brilliant. She got a, a, million dollar contract to write a second book. Um, she got into ketamine, um, she had to eventually give back the million dollars because she wasn't getting anywhere writing. um. She had a supplier who was, I think, uh, either dentist or doctor. Um, her friends did an intervention, threatened the supplier with God knows what. Um, that worked for a while. Uh, she got back, uh, she, she went off it for, for quite some time, um, got back into it. The last time I saw this brilliant and creative person, was a couple of months ago two or three months ago, and uh, her hair was unwashed um, a friend of mine who's very acute noticed that her uh, her nails were dirty um, she couldn't really properly complete a sentence and she's wrecked and i My feelings, I have to admit, I am really prejudiced against this drug because of the kind of damage it does that seems to last long after they maybe have given it up. They still have um, strange quirks in their thinking. They cannot think clearly. So I I, I would just urge you to be very careful. Uh, Somebody else had a hand up on it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I wanted to make a comment about the
1: therapy
2: question of seeking someone out. Yeah. I don't mean to like dismantle the concept, the question, the concept of therapy in general, but I'd like to say my feeling on this is that um, isn't this what our friends are for? Like, you don't need to do this out of, out of a you know, I shouldn't say you don't need to, but I'm touching the idea of not having a community and a family and a friendship network that's strong enough to trip with your friends and work through your personal or spiritual um, journey.
1: Oh, easy. We we have a terrific one in the Bay Area in Northern California. There uh, There is a terrific network, uh, as you know. But I was talking to somebody who is uh, lives in Minnesota. And uh, uh, there are a lot of people here who live in different states where uh, I'm sure there are groups, but he hasn't found the group yet. And if you've just moved to to a new place, how do you find... If you, if you find the material to do,
2: and you have friends. Maybe they don't do it, <laughs> but to have somebody that will talk with you, or whatever is the concept of therapy.
1: Or just do it yourself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. But. But. Uh, still, there is a great deal of good, successful work done when you have a guide, or you know, a therapist or lay therapist guide who's good and who who can, you know, do shadow work with you or something like that. Shadow work is very hard to do by yourself. Um yeah okay if if you live in a place and you've lived in a place long enough to have formed a network of friends uh I don't think you've got the problem but uh again it it would it would be good for the therapists in this in this group to get together and see if uh if they can share information that might be of use yeah
2: I think that the idea of uh, therapy with a uh, small group of friends that is in a more serious context, very small, like two to three group, you know, people per group, I think that that's the only way that the underground therapeutic movement can really move on because, like you are saying, there's no way to just reliably find a therapist who's trained. So, I mean, you need to take the people who are who are being the, the lay therapists and just let them understand the basic concepts of psychoanalysis, or at least this has been my experience. And then have them work with other people, with, uh, you know,
1: Yeah, 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 and right. Like
2: that, and just work through things. And I think you'll find that each person has their own, you know, in the group has their own uh, therapeutic value.
1: Uh, yes, that's, that's true. Uh, yes, far back. Um, is that the family, that family? That really important?
3: Well, I'll say for a lot of people that... Talking about these issues with friends, it can be very demanding on friends. And because mm-hmm. you're with people you know, like a partner or family, it can sometimes be really hard to open up to those feelings that might involve those. Yeah. In the dark side. And in relation to that, like, being an untrained therapist working, or like a friend working with a a patient or client, whatever you want to call it, without having the training, because having gone through that like, four years in university, where you learn loads of things and having read all these brilliant works that have been written about the um, interpretation of these visions. Because as you might always have known, that these visions are not like a little dwarf coming out and saying, oh, this and this and this is your dark side, and this and this and this is what you're going to do to sort it out. Yeah, it's yeah. Like that. <laughs> but we all know that these visions can be really tricky. Yeah. And you need to go in and look at them from a, like, an entire aspect, like welcoming Freudian, you people you talking about, and especially young, there's artisans. Right. And you know, you might think of uh, yourself like a cute spider, or a your child, you can't run that up to do with anything. And then when you work with the therapy, and you know the story of the patient, you might see the bigger picture, and you might be able to point and say, oh, right, that's very interesting. And without the training, you know, it can a lot.
1: Yeah, I I I agree very much. I I think if then you
3: use the tool that you've been given, and that can be energy, it can be energy, it can be the
1: drug. Yeah, that I I'd, I'd like to add another my own uh, a favorite tool, which I think is is uh, uh, fully equivalent to any any drug. Ever, ever come across and and that's uh a hypnosis you find a good hypnotherapist and they can uh, help you unlock exactly the same doors and uh in our in our network um we don't think about that very much but i worked with a hypnotherapist uh when i was doing therapy and um I have immense respect for what, what can be done. Again, you've got to choose the right person. You've got to be able to feel affinity uh, for them and they for you. But that, that goes for any therapy. But I think um, you don't really need MDMA or a psychedelic to do this sort of work. Uh, there, there are people who say, well, I, I can't be hypnotized or I can't work with it. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that really is so. But I think that uh, until these, um, at least you know, some of these materials become legal, uh, don't uh, don't dismiss the possibilities of hypnotherapy doing exactly what you need and want. Well, yeah. What's the legal ones like
2: two T seven and all those.
1: Why aren't those can they be used or not? Um, yeah, I would think that. Of course, there, there is, is, as far as I'm concerned, no substitute for MDMA, because it is the insight drug, and it does that magical combination of allowing you to see inside without, you know, fear and, and uh, hostility toward, toward yourself. I mean, it's beautiful, beautiful effect. And no other drug that we know of so far uh, manages to do that. Uh, any other drug come close? Does anybody, um, has anybody had experience with any other drug that is close? I was
2: lucky enough to have a personal experience with Methyl J and I found it very similar without some of the downsides.
1: Oh, what is Methyl J? Sasha, help, help.
2: Is it legal? It's
1: not illegal. Not illegal. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, what, what was your. What was your experience? Uh, did you use it for yourself or with patients? It was
2: just personal experience. It was a little shorter, uh, perhaps uh, a little smoother here and easier, um, and I liked it. I found it very more
1: similar
2: than this. Okay. The alpha methyl group someone asked about the alpha ethyl group in the alpha position. This is, in essence, MDMA with an alpha ethyl group.
0: On
1: Is it relatively easy to make?
0: Unfortunately, that's where this tape cut off, and I haven't been able to locate any tapes that might have the continuation of this talk on it, but if it uh, shows up someday, I'll certainly be sure to play it for you. However, in reference to the uh, part we just heard, uh, if you'll recall that early in her presentation, Anne mentioned the Palenque conference the year before when some of us tested some 2-CT7. Well, if you want to know more of the uh, details about that experiment, you can read uh, more or less an informal report of that experiment on the AeroWid.org website, and I'll put a link to it in the program notes for this podcast. And I'll uh, leave it up to you to figure out uh, which of the participant quotes in that report were mine. Also, as a uh, historical side note, the report of that experiment was written by Casey Hardison, who, as you know, is uh, now one of the more prominent prisoners of the war on drugs, with still over 700 days left to serve in a UK prison cell. And if you hear this, Casey, we want you to know that you have a world of support out here, and uh, we look forward to you being a free man once again. Now let's get on to the second talk in today's program, which is one of the talks that was given at the Breaking Convention, a multidisciplinary conference on psychedelic consciousness that was held at the University of Kent in the UK this past April. And I happen to know that many of the organizers and participants in that event are also fellow Saloners. So greetings and blessings to you all, and uh, thank you all ever so much for being part of that important event. Now the talk I'm going to play right now was sent to uh, me by a fellow podcaster, the man behind the wonderful Shroom with a View podcast. And uh, whose name I'm not sure I'm supposed to say, or maybe it was another podcaster who wants to remain anonymous, but just in case uh, I'll just thank Shroom with a view for this talk uh, without uh, giving his other names and uh, at the same time, also let you know that uh, almost all of the rest of the talks from this conference are available over at WWw shroom with a view s-h-r-o-o-m with a view all one word shroomwithaview.com and it's in the archive for podcasts uh, 25 to 49 in fact uh, you'll also find a lot of other programs there that I think you'll want to check out and uh, also now he's being carried on the dopefiend.co.uk network and uh, it's as you know the premier podcast network of the tribe so uh, twice a month you can catch another of shroom's great programs over there now, the talk we are about to hear was given by Dr. William Rowlandson, who you will hear is also a fellow saloner and who is co-director of the Center for the Study of Myth. And the talk he gave that uh, we are now going to hear is titled, Borges and McKenna, Iconoclasm, Boundary Dissolution, and Living Symbolically. Well, thank you. Good
4: afternoon, it's a tremendous pleasure and honour to be here. Um, this is a tremendous gathering of people. Um, I've got some, uh, some great precedents today of the speakers that have come before me, and some beautiful nuggets uh, of the information and ideas that we've had over the course of this morning and of yesterday. Um, one little bit that's, that, that, that really sang out to me was um, Ivan, I don't know if he's still here, Ivan, um, Talking about the plants having a voice. Um, This to me is a perfect introduction to the area that I'll be talking about today, which is about understanding reality symbolically, understanding that reality actually communicates with us as much as we communicate with reality with our surroundings. And uh, what I'm going to be talking about, I don't know if any of you will be a little bit sad a little bit alarmed at seeing Terence McKenna and Louise Bordekis um, placed together in the same paper. Um, I, think it's, I think it works very well, and I'll explain a little bit about this. I've heard over the course of this uh, over, over the day, yesterday, various people saying, things such as, uh, you know, I've been smoking cannabis since I was 14, or I've been taking LSD since I was 15. Well, in my case, I've been ruling Bordekis since I was 15. And I think that that has been uh, more of a groundbreaking and, uh, and culture-breaking uh, uh, activity than probably any uh, amount of, uh, of LSD. Um, well, it can be equated to that. So, uh, so I'd recommend... Uh, case is not for the faint-hearted, I certainly agree with that. Um, and I've been reading Terence McKenna and listening to Terence McKenna um, since a fateful morning walking up to uh, the university in Cambridge, and he mentioned something about the time wave theory. Um, and uh, that was a number of years ago. And uh, although I held the two in a fairly separate compartments of my mind, it all came together with one of uh, Loren- Lorenzo's um, Lorenzo Haggerty's podcasts, um, in which the tremendous author Tom Robbins—I don't know if anyone's read Tom Robbins, but those who haven't, I recommend Tom Robbins. And Tom Robbins and Terence McKenna were rapping together and they talked about Borges, and I was, uh, I was blown out of my chair because there were three people whom I held very dear to my heart uh, Tom Robbins, Terence McKenna and now they are talking about Borges, so it kind of, the whole thing came together but of course it comes together much more than that and this is what I'm going to explain today and in fact I'm not going to speak very much I'm going to read various quotes I'm going to do a sort of a, a funny patchwork affair today of Elements, uh, quotes of uh, of Terence, and Terence, who's uh, the anniversary of his death today, so um, may be enjoying his experience with the machine arts. Right he's probably looking down upon us now, it he's probably sitting somewhere. <laughs> uh. But in particular, I'm going to be bringing out elements of Terence, which I think are fairly often overlooked his extraordinary work as a scholar of literature, his reading of Gnosticism, his reading of alchemy, his understanding of, for example, John Dee, the Elizabethan alchemist and magician, and uh, the the English Elizabethan alchemist, Um, his reading of James Joyce, in particular Finnegan's Way, his amazing um, ability to read and assimilate and bring into the same symbolic dimension his reading of different authors and different magicians and different philosophers. And I realise, of course, it's very similar to the whole uh, drive of Borges, who writes as a reader, and Borges as, a, as, a, as an explainer of his own reading, his own incredibly extensive bibliographic reading. Um, I see that they are actually very similar. They have this incredible ability to remember huge passages and to bring together in this wonderful patchwork um, which for Borges I would place under this loose term known as mysticism and for McKenna I put them as loose term, and I mean loose term, known as psychedelics but of course as I hope to explain um, mysticism and psychedelia or psychedelics are actually two (coughs) different words to explain what's essentially the very similar um, conceptual understanding of the universe. So I'm going to shut up a little bit and let them talk. Um, I think the first thing to say that I find present in both Terence and in Bordkiss is the articulation of this astonishing paradox, which is probably at the heart of a lot of what we are doing here today and yesterday. And that paradox is the... Ceaseless, constant drive to understand something that is inherently ununderstandable. Now, of course, that the paradox lies in the fact that we understand that it's not to be understood, and yet we understand that we continue to try to understand. It's a beautiful paradox because, of course, you are presented with the obvious situation of saying, "Well, if it's ineffable, if it's un." explainable, and if it's un-understandable, I may as well just give up and go and watch daytime telly. But of course we don't. That's why we're here today. And so when we come to the essential riddle of, of existence and the riddle of the universe, this ex- extraordinary paradox of attempting to understand knowing that the ultimate, the ultimate uh, answer to the riddle of, of existence will never be answered. And I can read some quotes here, like I said, I'll let them speak rather than me. Here's a quote from Bordquist. Um If life's meaning were explained to us, he said, in Spanish, but I'm not uh, reading it, we probably wouldn't understand it. To think that a man can find it is absurd. We can live without understanding what the world is or who we are. The important things are the ethical instinct and the intellectual instinct, are they not? The intellectual instinct is the one that makes us search while knowing that we are never going to find the answer. And Terence, and I won't try and do it his crazy <laughs> elephant accent, um, Terence, here's a lovely quote um, from this podcast, and I don't know if he called it this, or Lorenzo called it this, but it's called Nature," I Nature. Mean lovely. Living psychedelically, says Terence, is trying to live in an atmosphere of continuous unfolding of understanding, so that every day you know more and see into things with greater depth than you did before. Um, what we get from this also is the understanding that the world is essentially um, a riddle. Um, and there's a lovely little quote here I have from Borges, when he was 80 years old, these series of interviews he did when he was 80. and he says, "I think the world is a riddle," he says. And the one beautiful thing about it is that it cannot be solved. But of course, I think the world needs riddles. I feel amazement all the time. And he actually goes into the explanation of the word amazement, the English word amazement, which you think is better than the, the Spanish word asombra, um, because it has maze within it. So therefore you're already entering a maze by the use of the word amazement. Whereas asombro has shadow, sombra within it. So you're, 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 you're sort of lost in this, in this lack of understanding in both cases. Now, what this also leads to is something which is which will be very familiar to any readers or listeners of parents. Um, and any readers of this, which is this sense of a rejection of dogma. A sense that belief with a capital B is itself a highly problematic um, mode of thought because belief with a capital B necessarily um, excludes other lines of thought. So therefore... Moving away from rigid doctrine, moving away from dogma, is the opening up of a greater sense of tolerance for other lines of thought. And uh, I found this beautifully articulated in um, in in, in as well. And he uses the word agnostic, but agnostic here. Well, I'll let him explain. He says, "Being an agnostic means all things are possible, even God, even the Holy Trinity." This world is so strange that anything may happen. or may not happen. Being an agnostic makes me live a larger, a more fantastic kind of world. Almost uncanny. It makes me more tolerant. Now, I guarantee you that you cannot listen to anything at Terence without hearing him re- repeat that phrase that he uses all the time. Which is that the universe is not more weird than we imagine. It's more weird than we can imagine. So again, we've got this this similar perspective of the the aesthetic joy and the epistemological value of bafflement, of puzzlement, of mystification. That itself is of great, um, as I say, great epistemological value. Um, So, with this idea of belief, Terence then, bring this into this well-known expression, you can see this as little sort of brief YouTube clips um, of culture being not your friend, because culture being, it's it's related interestingly to the question that Ollie just raised earlier, Um, the idea that culture actually being a defining um, boundary, uh, the, the, the defining imposition of boundaries, and of course, as we all know, Terence, Um, spends a lot of time expressing the idea that psychedelics are boundary dissolving Um, and there's a lovely little quote that I have here about belief this is from Terence Um, much of the problem of the modern dilemma he says is that direct experience has been discounted and in its place all kinds of belief systems have been erected you see if you believe something you are automatically
3: precluded from believing
4: its opposite now, he's often taken quite a hard line in there, but he's also quite an iconoclast, so it's, he probably derives uh, great joy from saying such things. Um, and another thing that Terence says, um, which I think is, that, again, absolutely <clears throat> critical, cultures, he says, that have habitually broken down the cultural illusion and examined the terrifying reality beyond it have not marched off then to pontificate with the religions of absolutism or scientific absolutism, absolutism or the rest of it. Why is that? Is because cultures are virtual realities made of language, and if there is one thing psychedelics do, whether you hate them or love them, whether you don't give a hoots, what they do is they dissolve boundaries—the boundaries between you and the floor, between you and your friend, between you and last week, between you and next week—and they dissolve boundaries. That's what they do. That is ultimately subversive behaviour, and again, it's. That's to a link to, uh, to Caroline's talk earlier of the of, of the of the subculture, the subcultural dimension, because of course, part, until the subculture is being commodified, that subculture is operating too, to, so with the objective to a certain degree of breaking down some of the, uh, the imposed uh, boundaries of the hegemonic culture. And as Ollie asked, even until of course, it becomes commodified as a new cultural more. Um, that's what psychedelics do, says Terence. They teach you we do it this way. Don't go there. Sorry, sorry, that's wrong. Sorry. That's what cultures do. Cultures are bound in defining engines. That's what they do. They teach you we do it this way. Don't go there. In your mind. In your heart. Follow the rules. Follow the rules. Cultures are like operating systems. You know? At Ur, and at, well, Ur will do. They set up a stele in the centre of the marketplace. And on the stele they carve the laws. These were the laws of the operating system called Ur 1.0. And that worked fine for a while. Now we're operating under Clinton's second term, 4.0. And is it limiting? I mean, actually, we could think of this as a Hillary Clinton perhaps, although he was talking in the 1990s. <laughs> the same things apply. And is it limiting? Is it idiotic? Is it a pain in the rear end? You bet it is. So that's a, that's a very common feature of people's reading of um, parents, And also a broadcast. Of the idea of breaking down the rigidly maintained uh, barriers that the belief systems, especially cultural belief systems, have set up around us, and this in itself can be expressed through the term of being multiculturalist. Um, now, I think I think can, we can. There are more ways we can look at this, and this is, I think, a very important one here as well. And this, um, this is. Coming from an idea that Terence explains about the ethical dimension. And I do think this is important. If psychedelics don't secure a moral community, says Terence, then I don't see what the point of it is. Otherwise, we're just another cult. Now I think that's that's incredibly powerful words. But there is obviously there is a need, and again it is linked to this idea of, of, of culture and subculture, there is a need to derive value and meaning as opposed to simply setting up a new cultural form which will stand in some kind of opposition to a more dominant <coughs> cultural form. That's to say there needs to be the, the expression of, of, of meaning and of understanding from the experience and of course as Terence was um, a great pains to explain. One's meaning derives not from one's faith in belief systems, but from the felt presence of immediate experience, from what you experience. Now here, I'll start to enter the, uh, this, this, this symbolic world. Um, Borges explains on many occasions that the experience of reading, the experience of, of dreaming, the experience of nightmares, the experience of imagination is as real as the experience of, for example, a tangible, empirical um, activity. And indeed, he says that he knew London far better from reading Chesterton than when he did when he went there. Well, as it was, he was blind when he went there, so was hardly surprising. But in any respect, his experiences, as he says, of the dream world are as... are of a, as... Great an importance in his whole cultural development, and his own personal development, as his experience of any, um, any let's say, uh, material uh, engagement with reality. Indeed, he wouldn't even make, up, make this distinction between a material and an imaginal. The two are, are perfectly equated. And this is of great importance, and I think this is of great importance. This re- refers me back to a conversation I've had with Cameron before which comes to the idea that if we look at medical and scientific um, explanations of psychedelic experiences there might be for example an expression such as the effects of x last for between five and seven hours or between three and five hours or between seven and eight minutes whatever it may be now I my feeling that perceiving the world on a more symbolic basis we start to become in tune with the fact that the effects actually don't last just eight hours, they actually last a lifetime, because they actually will help you change your perspective on how you you relate with your your surroundings. But it's more than that as well, it's also about how your surroundings relate with you. And here this brings up the whole um, issue of Jung and synchronicity, and how the relationship between psychedelic experiences and synchronicity are of great importance and that we should be attuned to that we should be attuned to the idea that within the psychedelic experience and beyond the psychedelic experience and I wouldn't say out of because that's what I'm arguing that there isn't necessarily an out of it is an understanding that events transpire within reality which are as meaningful to us as, um, as the dream world for example as... As the literature that we're reading, the books we're reading. So there's a lot more I can say about this. There's much more I can say about this. Um, ah, I'm just trying to think about how to how to wrap this one up now. Um, essentially, essentially, the the way to bring this together, the way to, to bring this t- together is is for me the this. The conflation of mysticism and psychedelics and psychedelic experience is, I find, of great importance here. Now, of course, we've got one of the works that I've been engaged in the last few months is Borges's reading of Swedenborg. Swedenborg who was a, uh, um, a mystic who travelled to the angelic world and talked with angels. Now, Borges places great value upon Swedenborg and upon Swedenborg's journeys. And as the same is true of, for example, Rick Strassman's assessment of the interactions that people have on the DMT with the entities um, or the machine, that them. now of course, although as Graham Hancock has done, and probably he'll talk about this this afternoon, there is this, this there's, a, there's a whole body of literature which is looking at this relationship between mysticism and psychedelia. The important thing there is the fact. Of the psychedelic society, as Terence calls it, the psychedelic society is not the society in which everyone is loaded on DMT for hours a day at all. And indeed, neither is it the society where, as, as, as Russ Bingley said earlier, where, for example, everyone smokes the herd at all. But it's the society which gives value to the experiences of those who do, and it's a society that gives value to the encounters that people have and the. The the learning that people engage with under these experiences. And, of course, this again relates to the various conversations we've had about drug policy and the law. Because one of the key features of drug policy is giving no value to those experiences. Suggesting that such experiences are worthless. Now, of course, in the same way that we can give value to the experiences, let's say, of William Blake or Emmanuel Swedenborg, as I've been reading the him, in the same way that the Psychedelic Society, as Terence calls it, would be the community that gives value to those experiences. I'm going to end there because I'll just keep rambling for You're listening to The
2: Psychedelic Salon
3: where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: I have to admit that uh, when, uh, in the beginning of his talk, William mentioned an old podcast uh, I did that featured Terrence McKenna and Tom Robbins, well, I was uh, really quite surprised, because uh, out of all the podcasts I've done, uh, that one, by far, has the very worst sound quality. (laughs) And uh, the truth is that I've always felt it was a mistake for me to include it in the salon particularly since I received several emails saying that they couldn't make it out at all. In fact, uh, whenever I think of that podcast, I uh, consider removing it from the listing of podcasts uh, simply due to the quality of the sound. But now that I've heard how it affected William one morning, I realize that uh, I should quit second-guessing myself and just let it be. And by the way, the uh, podcast he was referring to is number 151 and is titled Posthumous Glory which uh, refers to a comment that Terence made during that talk in which he uh, he said something to the effect of, Ah, posthumous glory, that's where the action is. <laughs> and uh, that took everybody by surprise, uh, Terence included. It was actually kind of funny when he said it because as the words were coming out of his mouth, you could kind of see it beginning to dawn on him that he was talking about himself. And, uh, you know, a hush began to descend on the room, which... Terrence immediately dispelled by breaking into one of those big laughs he always had at his own expense. It was uh, really a rare moment and quite frankly is the main reason I included that talk in the podcast. Now uh, I realize that my reasons for including one talk or another may not have anything to do with the reasons why you or another fellow saloner might like it or, or not as the case may be. But getting back to William's talk just now I'm so glad that I got to hear it as he has really helped me gain an even deeper appreciation of Terrence McKenna's work. In fact, uh, I'm going to get to work on a new McKenna podcast right now, and so I'll do my best to uh, get that out to you tomorrow. So, for now, I guess I'd better close and uh, remind you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you are interested in some of the stories that may or may not have led you and me to where we are sharing this moment right now, you can read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available in Kindle format and uh, other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook that's read by me. And you can find out more about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space.